Okay, open your Bibles now to um, 1 Kings 21. I'll read you a story, a very famous story. It was, it's been made famous by a Baptist preacher. I'll tell you about it later. But it's the story of Naboth and his vineyard. Um, it begins at verse 1. It goes all the way through the end of the chapter, but we're only going to read the first 16 verses uh, for time's sake. So he, here we go. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed and you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give uh, me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Rise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the, of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside in the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they, said, then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that, heard that, heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that, Naboth was dead. Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. <laughs> the grass withers and the flower fades, but not this book. Not this word. Heaven and earth will pass away, ladies and gentlemen, and not one jot or tittle will go unfulfilled. You know, having um, spent last week um, very briefly speaking to a very controversial issue of the um, prosperity gospel, I thought that this week we might lighten up and, and speak to something that we all love, speak about something that we all love, and that's Mother's Day. Um, the dignity of women. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, folks, do you remember a, a book that came out in 2012? It, it, it really um, made the circles in the, in the evangelical world. It was uh, 2012. It was written by John Gray, and it was entitled, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Remember that? It was a cutesy little title, I thought. And, um, and if you read it, you, you will recall that though it's not a New Testament treatise, there's nothing really Christian about it, but he made some, some good observations, and one of them was um, that the number one complaint that women have against men 
is that we men do not listen to them. Ho, say it isn't so. Um, But gentlemen, uh, have you ever had a woman in your life say that about you? Well, that makes all of us. Um, That is their complaint, that we don't listen. Um, But essentially, the the idea in the book uh, of men are from Mars, women are from Venus, that it was, was this, that once upon a time, Martians and Venusians met and fell in love and had happy relationships together because they, they understood and respected and accepted their differences. That's a nice thought. And, and we all know and agree that those, there are differences between males and females, and, and we all know that those differences should be accepted and respected. But who said anything about understanding them? Um, I, to this day, do not understand how women hang out on the phone for as long as you do. I, I want a phone call, get it over in three minutes, and get moving. I don't understand that. But, but folks, um, on the behalf of all maledom, I say, there are only two kinds of men in the world today. Men who understand women and men who don't. And I would suggest to you that all of the men here are in the latter category. Some of us would even confess to being utterly mystified. You know, do you know the name Richard Bach? I, I didn't either, but I ran across of him during the research for this. And Richard Bach, B-O-K, he was the editor-in-chief of the Ladies Home Journal. Ladies Home Journal. For 30 years. Did you get that? Ladies Home Journal, 30 years. And Richard Bach said this, and I'm quoting. <laughs> Once and for all, let me make it clear that I do not understand women. No man does or can. The man who claims to understand women is an idiot. <laughs> I don't know, it's pretty funny. I, I, you know, and, and you know, we, may, we may or may not agree about that. But here's something, ladies and gentlemen, that I do think that we can all agree upon, agree about. We know of the extraordinary influence that women wield. Um, And that's going to be the point of my sermon all morning. The extraordinary influence wielded by women. And to illustrate that one point, I want to tell you two stories. Two stories about two different women. One of the women is fictional. The other woman is not. She's biblical. The fictional woman is a woman whose name was Lorna Dune. You ever ever heard of Lorna Dune? She was so influential that Nabisco made a cookie and named their cookie for her. This cookie, ladies and gentlemen, came out in 1912. That's 107 years ago. This cookie came out, and it is still around, and I'm here to tell you it's a pretty good cookie. I had one guy in, 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 um, who runs uh, marathons in between services saying this is what he eats <laughs> in preparation for the marathon. I better, I better get in there, but... Um, but Lorna Dune and her reputation was so influential that Nabisco named a cookie after her, folks. Who was she? Who was Lorna Dune? Well, she was the main character and the heroine of a novel written by uh, Richard Blakemore 
And that novel first appeared by that name, Lorna Doone. It first appeared in 1869. It was such a hit that she became much discussed and much talked about, so much so that Nabisco named a cookie after her. But also, the men of Yale uh, voted uh, that that novel was their favorite novel in 1906, and she was their favorite heroine. And then six years later, a cookie came out. (laughs) Makes sense. Um, When all the all the conversation is about Lorna Doone, just bake a cookie. Call it Lorna. <clears throat> now, gang, why all the love for Lorna? Why, why was she so esteemed? Well, she was recognized as the most engaging, heroines of, uh, the most engaging heroine of romance. And I want to tell you the story. It's a, it's a, this is the story of the book, and I'm going to try to make it fast, but uh, it really is a, a fascinating tale. Um, the, 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 the male lead in the book is a man by the name of John Ridd, R-I-D-D. John Ridd meets and falls in love with Lorna Doone. Um, but in the process of falling in love with her, he discovers that she is um, one of the famous clan of the famous Doone clan. And the Doone clans was a band of outlaws who had murdered John Ridd's father. Um, she longed to be free from all this lawlessness and the, and the, the doomed reputation. And John, who had fallen in love with her, had to set aside his lust for revenge because of his love for her um, and, and um, the point that the author was making was even though she dwelled in the surroundings of lawlessness and crime, none of it defiled Lorna. Now, she was scheduled to marry, against her will, another one of the Dunes, Carter Dune. But John, not, not wanting to see that happen, rescues her, steals her away, and takes her over to his family harem and to his family community. But everybody there, knowing that she was of the Doom clan, um, mistrusted her, didn't like her, rejected her, marginalized her, ostracized her, because she was of the Doom clan. But over time, Lorna, being beautiful on the outside and on the inside, the novel says, won them all over. To the point that the Dunes decided to attack the Rids' uh, farm and their, their village. And all of the people, having been won over by Lorna, uh, unite, risk their lives, and fend off the attack of the um, Dunes, the outlaws, the Dunes. After the attack, it is found out, this is so cool, at least in the, <clears throat> if you like novels, but it is found out that she's not a Dune at all. In fact, she is Lady Dugall, an heiress to one of the largest fortunes in the, in the country. But by law, she is required to return to London. John is heartbroken, and so are his whole family. 
but through some twists and some turns, and we can't get into it because John is arrested for treason, and then it's found out that he's innocent, but he's in London, and guess who he runs into? Lorna. They see each other, they run and embrace, they kiss, they fall, or they, they continue their love, and Lorna comes back to live with John in his village among his family. The last chapter of the book is entitled, Lorna is still Lorna. <laughs> the point was, neither the, the, the filth of, and the, the cesspool of, of outlaws, nor the perfumed atmospheres of courts and castles, none of it could influence her, but she influenced them all. Lorna Doone who now has a cookie named after her, everyone she met, she influenced for good. And though her setting was bad and different, none of it changed this great woman of influence who influenced all for good. (laughs) And that's why they named a cookie after her. So let's celebrate Lorna Doone and have a cookie. Now, let me tell you this story about another woman. She's not fictional. She's found right here in the scriptures. In fact, she's mentioned in the story that I read. Um, This woman was the wife of Ahab. You probably heard of Ahab. If you've gone to Israel, um, there's several archaeological digs, and a couple of them uh, point out that he was quite a builder. In fact, the, the Bible says so in 2239. Uh, the rest of Acts of Abraham, all that he did, the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built. Are they not written? All the cities that he built. And, and what you'll see over there are some uh, archaeological digs, and it's said that these were a part of Ahab's empire. Well, um, <clears throat> um, there are two big stories in the scriptures around Ahab, or that involve Ahab. The first story is about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that one? 1 Kings 18. And Elijah says, why do you halt between two opinions? And let the God who really is show himself by fire. And, and God does. And the 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered there on Mount Carmel. <clears throat> the other story that Ahab is associated with is the one that I read you. Naboth's vineyard. And I said it was made famous by a a Baptist pastor. It was. R.G. Lee preached a sermon on this text years ago, I think in the 50s. I I know we studied it in seminary. It was preached over 1,100 times. They made tapes and books and albums out of it. And when I first heard it, it was on an LP record. Um, But it was called Payday Someday. And I can still hear him saying... um, (laughs) Well, later on in this story, uh, where, where Elijah comes to meet Ahab, and when Ahab says, when he sees Elijah, he says, Hast thou found me, oh, my enemy? That's R.G. Lee. That's my best rendition of R.G. Lee. But the, the, the sermon was famous and made the text, made the, story, the, the sermon was famous and made the story famous. <clears throat> now, um, the thing that I want you to see about these two events is the role that Jezebel played. 
Let's take the first story. The story of 450 prophets of Baal. Um, You know, after those 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered, Jezebel says in chapter 19, verse 2, you just tell Elijah that I'm coming after him, and I'm going to kill him. She has a track record of killing the Lord's prophets. That's mentioned in chapter 18. And Obadiah hid 100 of them in caves. You remember that? Uh, But you tell Elijah that by this time tomorrow, he's a dead man. Elijah confronted Ahab, but he ran from Jezebel. What the, what the earlier chapters, in chapter 16, we're told that Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, the uh, king of the Sidonians. And do you know who the Sidonian god is or was? Baal, the storm god. The fertility of the land is dependent upon Baal sending rain. And his weapons were thunder and lightning. And so when Elijah steps forward and says, there's going to be a drought, oh, the contest is on. But the contest is not between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. It's between Yahweh and Baal. And so uh, Baal doesn't step forward on Mount Carmel. Yahweh does. And the 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered. But here's my point. How did those 450 prophets of Baal get there in the first place? It was because of Jezebel's influence. You see, Baal was her god. And we are told um, that, um, let me read you this, that she she so influenced her husband that... um, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidonians, who went and served Baal and worshipped him. And Ahab followed her. So how did this event come to be on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, where where, um, where Elijah is pitted against 450 prophets of Baal? Because of the influence of a woman. Jezebel. Now, this other story. Naboth's vineyard. Did you, did you hear it? I mean, it's really rather entertaining. Except for Naboth. You know, uh, Ahab has uh, got a... There's, Naboth owns a, you know, a, a garden right close to the palace. And so Ahab wants the, the garden. And he says, I'll buy it or I'll exchange it for another piece of land. And, and, and uh, Naboth turns him down. And you did see why Naboth turned him down, didn't you? It's in 21, uh, three, uh, 2, 3. Uh, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Do you know why Naboth turned down that offer? Not because he was being petulant. No. It was because there were Old Testament laws that forbid or forbade um, the, the land to be swapped around among the tribes. The, the, uh, the laws of Jubilee, the laws of Leviticus 25. And so when Naboth says no, he's trying to honor God's word and his law. But when Ahab asks to buy it, he's showing the disregard that he has for Yahweh's laws. And so Naboth says no. So what is big rough tough king ahab do 
he goes to his bedroom and he turns his face to the wall and he won't eat any pouts. Don't worry. Jezebel to the rescue. Jezebel comes and says, um, what's your problem? Well, Nabal wouldn't tell me his vineyard. And do you see how contemptuously she speaks to him? She says, um, are you the king of Israel or not? You go get yourself something to eat. I'll get that vineyard for you. And so she hatches a plan. And the plan is to have two worthless men, or a, a, a fast to be called, and two worthless men to come to the fast and accuse Naboth falsely, wickedly, wrongfully, lying through the teeth that he's blasphemed God and the king, and take him outside and stone him. That's what happens. Where'd that plan come from? From Jezebel. Jezebel. And then... Um, thinking that they had gotten away with this little piece of robbery, God raises up Elijah and sends Elijah over to Ahab. And that's when Ahab says, Hast thou found me, O my enemy? Yep, you've been found out, Ahab. And then Elijah predicts how um, Ahab is going to die and how Jezebel is going to die. She's going to die. The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And that's what happens in 2 Kings 9. <clears throat> Folks, I've told you that whole story because I want to show you one thing. It's in chapter 21. Hope you got your Bibles open. You need to see this. Chapter 21, verse 25. It's just one verse. And it's interesting because it's, in, it's parenthetical. It's in, a, it's in a parenthesis. And here's what's said. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, comma, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. <laughs> now tell me, ladies and gentlemen, why would God the Holy Spirit put that in there? Why would God the Holy Spirit think it important to include that little six or five words Ahab was so wicked. And oh, by the way, his wickedness was incited by his wife. So, you see the influential power of a woman for good in Lorna Dune. And the influential power to evil in Jezebel. What makes the difference? What determines whether she will use her influence for good or use her influence for evil? I would suggest to you that the answer is found in the New Testament. Folks, in what other religious document do you find stories like you find in this one? The story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Theotokos, the mother of God. Or how about 
the, the sisters of Bethany, Mary and Martha? Or how about that unnamed woman in Luke 7 who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and, wash, and dries them with her hair? Or what about the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5? Or what about the woman in Mark chapter 7 who's a Syrophoenician woman, which means she's a Gentile, and Jesus almost rebukes her when she replies, yes, Lord, I understand, but even the dogs eat the crumbs under your table. What religious document do you know of that includes stories that make women heroes? Not a one. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, women in the New Testament were active players in the ministry of Jesus, or not women's ministry, they were in Christ's ministry because there's been a whole paradigm shift with the arrival of Jesus Christ. You know, there's another novel that I, I, I stumbled across in, in preparation for all this, and I, I didn't read this, um, this novel, it's called Madame Claire by Susan Ertz. And the, the leading lady in the, in the book is Madame Claire, and she's an older woman, and, and she, it, it, it's repeated several times in the book that Madame Claire is a woman who prays to the God who understands women. There is such a God. And femaleness for the first time was understood upon the arrival of Christ. And femaleness was elevated to her rightful position. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you understand and will never forget that it's the New Testament gospel that says there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Ladies, do you know what Islam, do you know Islam's view of women? Or how about Hindus' view of women? But not Christianity. It is the Christian gospel that comes along and says, Never again is there to be a distinction between the value and the worth and the dignity of the two genders because there is neither male nor female. That, ladies and gentlemen, is pure Christian. Ladies, you have Jesus Christ to thank for that. Because of the way that Jesus responded to women, he, he brought out characteristics and strengths that were never before appreciated or understood by men. You, you know, don't you, ladies, that before he arrived, Jews, and I think they still do, get up in the morning and thank God that they're not a Gentile or a woman, but that won't be tolerated by Jesus Christ. We men may struggle to understand women, but Jesus didn't. Perhaps it was 
their propensity for those long, intimate conversations on the phone that make them so persuasive. Maybe it's their gifts of tenderness that soften the hard hearts of men with big egos. I I don't know. But I know that Jesus was the promoter of womankind. He revealed her dignity and he elicited her charms and the history of mankind is now the history of how women responding to his divine appreciation have wetted his feet with their tears and washed his feet, dried them with their, with their hair. And by their so doing, they have become influencers par excellence. Ladies, if you spurn this Savior, you damage your own femaleness. And in your so doing, the rest of us are harmed because you have incomparable influence. But when you embrace this Savior, your femaleness comes into full bloom. Your main calling is not to find your biblical womanhood. Your main calling is unto holiness. Unto Christ-like living. And when the room is full of women pursuing Christ-like living, the influence is felt far and wide. Happy Mother's Day. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that it is the gospel who has set us all free. But the ones who seem to have more bondage were women. And then Jesus came. And everything changed upon his arrival. Might we never forget the, um, the statements of worth and dignity and value that there is no such thing in the kingdom of God as male and female because Jesus Christ has elevated us to a position of equality. Not to ignore the differences, not to change the the complementary role that they play, but in terms of their value and their dignity, O oh God, they are to be appreciated and respected. Forgive us if we haven't done that, and where we can do it better, O oh God, would you enable us to do so. But would you unite us as people from Mars and Venus who appreciate, who respect, and understand the differences that exist, 
so that we might be useful to you in the ongoing upbuilding of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen.